0: Welcome back on Dark Listeners, I'm your host, Kasha Patel. Outside of this podcast, though, I'm a science writer at NASA and I write about Earth science. Now, I bring up my day job only because, one, brag, I'm employed, two, it's actually relevant to this episode. It's interesting when I tell people that I work in the earth science department because when they hear NASA, they automatically think of Mars and outer space, but not necessarily about studying our environment. In fact, I get so many questions about Mars that I have to read the latest research about human exploration, not because my job requires it, but because society requires it. Do you know how embarrassing it is when a seventh grader knows more about your workplace than you do? But I don't get it. Earth is my favorite planet because it's the only one that has Wi-Fi, as far as we know. Show me that on Mars and maybe I'll change my mind. So what I'm trying to say is this episode is special to me. We're going to take you inside a tornado-chasing airplane and later we're going to talk to the former EPA administrator, Gina McCarthy. But first, I have some things that I want to talk about. Now, I read a lot of articles and studies about sustainability efforts, and some of them are just so unbelievable that I'm thinking, this can't possibly be real. So I want to know, okay, is Kasha really this gullible, or is this something that a lot of people would find hard to believe? So I'm going to bring on our guest, Michael Schulson. You guys might remember him as our media tracker columnist for Undark magazine. And I'm going to try and see if he can pick out which sustainability efforts are real and which ones aren't. Hey, Michael, welcome back.
1: Hey, Kasha, Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. So for those of you who are listening, Michael is our media tracker guru from Undark magazine. So we're excited to have him back to talk about a study. But first, we're going to play a game. Two truths and a lie. Okay. Do you remember how to play this game when you're I, from when you were young? Yeah, I
1: feel like I'm a 14-year-old at summer camp doing an icebreaker, but I'm I'm ready.
0: Oh, nice! Great. Then we can make s'mores after this if you get it right. Great. Perfect. Okay. So the first one, in response to a new law in Malibu, California banning plastic straws, the local Paradise Cove Beach Cafe announced it would begin using straws made out of pasta. Okay. Scenario number two, a group of motorcycle gang members are helping lead an amphibian breeding program to resurrect an endangered salamander. Okay. And the third one, scientists in Singapore have figured out a way to make a non-toxic disposable battery using paper and a drop of your pee. The chemicals in urine, when added to copper chloride, magnesium, and copper, can produce as much power as a double-A battery.
1: Wow, so two of these are true? <laughs> two of them are true, yes. Okay. Yeah. So I, I have to admit, the motorcycle gang, I find the easiest to believe. Maybe I'm putting my reputation on the line here, but like, why wouldn't they want to help with such an important project? Uh California, I think California is a lie. California is the lie.
0: Okay, well, the answer is, drum roll, please. That's not a very good drum roll. The lie is a group of motorcycle members did not,
1: they are not leading an amphibian breeding program. I got it so wrong. I was, like, deeply wrong. It's disappointing to hear. I was excited about their work.
0: But I can tell you that there is a group of unlikely members leading a breeding program for the salamanders. Nuns.
1: (laughs) Oh, the nuns. You know, I honestly remembered seeing a story about salamanders in the news, which is partly why I figured this. But I clearly only saw the part about the salamanders and got nuns and motorcycle gang confused.
0: (laughs) That's an easy
1: thing to do. Wow. Okay. Well, so what does this mean for my reputation?
0: Well, Michael, you might never be two truths and a lie champion, but that's not really why we brought you here anyways. (laughs) Let me ask you a question about your field of expertise. What scientific study caught your eye this month and how is it portrayed in the news?
1: This particular paper is titled, A Process for Capturing CO2 from the Atmosphere. It's basically using a giant bank of fans and a series of chemical processes to take co2 and turn it into something well it's still co2 but to turn it into something else
0: why did it go so viral well first of all would you
1: say it went viral i would say that as 23 page studies about obscure chemical reactions go this one went pretty viral yeah the you know, I think this specific study partly played into, you know, it it played into fear and hope at the same time. It is taking a process for capturing carbon dioxide, which is causing climate change and causing a lot of anxieties for people. And it's showing a way to take this carbon dioxide and not only take it out of the atmosphere, uh, but also turn it into fuel, which could then be burned.
0: So... Earlier you said that they're trying to take, you said chemical processes, but also fans. Do you mean like like a blowing
1: fan? Giant blowing fans. Like imagine tons and tons of air conditioning units that have been stacked up that are just sucking air out and then channeling them into this complex series of chemical processes. The fans are there because you need to actually get the air into the system. Are you Um, joking
0: right now? Because this sounds way too simple of a solution.
1: Well, no. So, they show, like, it's the the fans part, the fan part, maybe is 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 probably the simplest part, right? Then you've got to do a ton of other things. Um, that process is not necessarily that innovative. Other engineers, other researchers are working on ways to do this and have developed ways to do this. What made this paper unusual, or what made it so so noteworthy, was that they were had found a way to do it, or the researchers are saying that they've found a way to do it that's a lot cheaper than what anybody else has managed to do.
0: There have been some articles saying this is a kind of end-all, be-all solution, but there are a lot of exaggerated coverage of this study, right?
1: Yeah, there there was definitely coverage that says things along the line of, hey, maybe this is going to save the world. Um, Headline in the Atlantic was climate change could be stopped by turning air into gasoline, which, you know, that's what they're trying to do basically is turn a gas and air into fuel. Uh, but whether that will single-handedly stop climate change is a little bit of a harder question. Uh, and there was certainly coverage along those lines. Hey, a bunch of engineers have figured out a way to suck all the carbon out of the air, turn it to gas, and save the planet.
0: What do you think <laughs> went well here with this
1: coverage? It was tricky because this is—it's a science story, but it's also very much an economic story and a politics story. And I think the best pieces talked about economics and talked about science, you know, talked about politics and talked about, okay, so this fancy technology exists. Like, what do we do with it? So I actually talked to Professor David Keith, who teaches applied physics at Harvard's engineering school and was the sort of main author of this
2: study. I guess overall, I thought the coverage was uh, really good. Um, I mean, one thing you definitely notice is a a gap between uh, headline and article. And, you know, as you know, in media, often it's not the same person that writes both. So there's some cases where the author actually wrote quite a careful, sensible story, but the uh, title said something like solar geoengineering saves the whole world or it's better than sliced bread and we don't have to worry about climate change anymore and some complete nonsense. But the article actually is quite sensible. I think there were a lot of those.
0: Sometimes they hit the mark, sometimes they miss it. But I'm interested to hear... Is there a lesson to learn here?
1: I think you know two lessons come to mind. One is that there's clearly a, a lot of demand for coverage like this, and there's a lot of demand for stories about, you know, what to do in the face of something that's vast and complicated and anxiety-inducing. On the flip side of that, maybe a second lesson is that it's fast and complicated, and... While it's easy to to gravitate towards saying this is a solution, um, finding that nuance, while sometimes challenging, is is really important. Especially, I think, when talking about technologies that offer a huge amount of promise, that really do offer a huge amount of promise, uh, but that also are part of these kind of vast networks of science, technology, and money that uh, that seem to power a lot of a lot of, of progress.
0: Well, Michael, it was a pleasure, as always. I look forward to talking to you next month.
1: I'm looking forward to it, too. Thanks, Kasia.
0: Bye. Our next guest traveled with a group of tornado chasers from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which is a mouthful, so we just call them NOAA. Let's welcome our intrepid traveler, Morgan Levy. Thanks for joining us, Morgan. Thank you. So Morgan, you and the researchers traveled to the Southeast United States to study tornadoes, which is interesting to me because when I think of tornadoes, I think of, oh, I'm not in Kansas anymore.
3: Yeah. um, And I think you're totally right in thinking that the Great Plains is really known for these big kind of killer tornadoes, and it is. Um, But the Southeast also actually endures a high number of deadly tornadoes each year. Uh, NOAA has this project called Vortex Southeast where they use trucks on the ground, but they also use airplanes to chase these tornadoes because the tornadoes form so quickly that airplanes actually can get to them pretty rapidly and um, kind of stay out of danger's way by, by doing these crazy maneuvers.
0: You actually had the opportunity to be in one of those airplanes, right? I
3: did. We ended up seeing two tornadoes from the air, actually.
0: Wow. So I've only seen footage of tornadoes from the ground. What's the tornado look like from the aerial view?
3: I can actually only speak to the first tornado because during the second tornado, I was getting sick for the umpteenth <laughs> oh, no. time on the flight. Um, <laughs> When you look out the window, it's sort of this big gray mass is, is the storm. And the tornado sort of this little point that comes down and touches Earth. Um, but what made it really obvious for us was that both tornadoes took out transformers. So you could see this bright flash on the ground, and it was clear that it was caused by
0: a tornado. Cool. Well, let's take a listen.
4: Blow up?
3: Yeah. That's Ian Sears, a meteorologist with the Hurricane Hunter flight crew. 2,500 feet below us, a bright light just flashed on the ground, the trademark sign of a tornado ripping through an electrical transformer. We're in a P3 aircraft over northeastern Louisiana, and we're doing what most airplanes avoid, trying to chase down a tornado.
4: Goes against all reason uh, for what you should be doing with an airplane, that's for sure. It is it is a good mission, though, and I really believe that the information that we are collecting is helping to save lives.
3: This flight is part of a project focused on studying how tornadoes form in the southeastern United States, aptly called Vortex Southeast. We're flying back and forth across the front edge of a supercell, the kind of rotating thunderstorm that produces tornadoes. The plane, a four engine turboprop aircraft named Kermit, is a flying laboratory. Kermit's decked out with radar instruments one on the nose, another underneath that scans horizontally, and two tail Doppler radars, which scan the storm vertically as we fly by.
4: So you're getting these cross angles that are giving you this really fine resolution of the storms. And you can see the rotation in the storms. Uh, We had a really neat instance the other night where you could actually see the tornado sticking out of the storm in the radar.
3: Scientists can then use this data to create a 3D map of the storm's internal structure and learn exactly what conditions lead to a tornado.
4: So I think the key question that we pose in our Vortex Southeast research is to establish a baseline for the types of internal air circulations that we have in strong storms in the Southeast, how these compare to the Great Plains thunderstorms that we have a bit more familiarity about.
3: That's Conrad Ziegler, the lead scientist of Vortex Southeast. When most people think of deadly tornadoes, they tend to think of the Great Plains, Oklahoma, Kansas,
4: However, the Southeast also has a tornado problem.
3: Last year, tornadoes killed 35 people in the U.S., and 25 of those deaths were in the Southeast.
4: Compared to the plains, we have a more compact or dense population.
3: That's Scott Worsham. He's an emergency management officer in Huntsville, Alabama. The dense population means it's more likely for humans to be in the path of any tornado that develops. And while the physics of severe storms are the same everywhere, Tornadoes in the southeast tend to develop quickly and without much warning. They happen at night when people are asleep and in the cooler part of the year. In 2012, Mobile, Alabama had a deadly tornado on Christmas. And the southeast doesn't have the wide open spaces of the Great Plains. It's wooded with hilly terrain that makes it harder to see tornadoes coming.
4: Anything that would allow us to see the indications that a tornado is about to occur uh, so we can get the warning out quicker It's gonna be beneficial to
3: us. And that's the end goal of Vortex Southeast, for scientists to observe and document the small features of a storm that mean a tornado is on its way, to give emergency managers and the public more warning.
2: The things that happen here in the Southeast, even with energetic storms like this, tend to be more subtle.
3: That's Kim Elmore, the radar scientist on board the flight. He's trying to explain how hard it is to predict storms here.
2: If it's like when you're petting a cat and the cat is all happy and purring, and then it's had enough and it just turns around and scratches your hand and takes off. And unless you know the cat really well, you don't see it coming.
3: We're chatting at a picnic table at the back of the plane while we fly from Huntsville, Alabama, to a line of storms near Shreveport, Louisiana. Chasing the storm from the air lets the team slip in close when a storm develops and dodge unpredictable danger.
4: Shreveport radar, we are seeing what I would say is the first detectable supercell.
3: It's about two hours into the flight when we reach our first storm cell, and the lapping dance begins. Ziegler is speaking through the headphones.
5: It's more intense uh, part northeast of Shreveport. Okay, so how about uh, 10 miles or so? Yep, okay, that sounds good. Perfect.
3: The woman's voice belongs to Jessica Williams. She's a meteorologist and the mission's flight director. Williams is a liaison between the scientists and the pilot. She understands the weather and what the plane is and isn't capable of flying through.
5: We have two on these missions because it's scary. <laughs> it's more dangerous.
3: On these flights, they use two flight directors because the weather is so tricky to navigate around. This crew normally flies through hurricanes, through the eye wall of some of the most devastating storms on the planet. And they've all told me that flying through a hurricane is logistically easier than chasing tornadoes.
2: Elmore. When we're going after these storms, it's, it's, it's not a straight shot at all. You saw we're doing turns and back and forth and adjusting ourselves all the time.
5: So you're flying out to what's going to be a line that isn't even there yet. And then mm-hmm. this stuff starts popping up and it's popping up not where you expected it to be. And you just pick one and fly back and forth and you pick another one and fly back and forth.
3: Working this line means taking a lap of the front edge of the storm. In order to maximize the radar's time scanning the storm, the pilot does these quick bank turns. At the end of a storm line, he puts the wing down 30 to 45 degrees and completely reverses course. This happens every five minutes. I was warned about the turbulence on this flight. I got sick 30 minutes in, and we were nowhere near a storm. But these quick bank turns are a whole new challenge for my stomach, and I get sick again. It's hard to hear but Ziegler said there's nothing else and Elmore said we've been sitting here all afternoon. It's a little over three hours into the flight and the weather isn't cooperating. While we found a few storms to lap, they haven't been as severe as forecasted. Everyone is frustrated. They're out here with expensive equipment and a huge team to support this mission. Every second they spend in the air, without tracking a severe storm, feels like a waste of energy and resources. Finally, a little over four hours into the flight, we spot our first tornado.
4: Oh, there's a transformer Uh, just went! The
3: The one that took out the transformer at the beginning of the story.
4: Fantastic, okay, I'll pass that on. Sounds like a tornado uh,
5: continuously on the ground. Yep, I just saw it through one of their caverns, all the way over here from the left side.
3: The scientists and crew are ecstatic to be finally capturing some useful data. The atmosphere on the plane is so infectious that I forget how sick I feel and run to the back of the plane to try to see the twister. And then about a half an hour later... I
4: think it's on the ground. Yeah, it's Whoa. on the ground, dude, I got that. You can see it. Look at it, it's right there, it's, it's there. Yeah,
5: yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: The supercell we're lapping produced another tornado, and again, it took out a transformer. At this point, we'd lap the storm over 20 times. That means one of those harsh bank turns every five minutes for an hour and a half. My body wants to be on the ground. But even while getting sick, I could hear Ziegler say through the headphones that this storm provided some of the best data of the season, mission accomplished.
4: The fact that we were able to sample the storm before, during, and after the tornadoes formed within it was really a remarkable opportunity to help us understand how tornadoes form.
3: That's Ziegler again. Making sense of the data will take about three years, but the team believes they now have the information to determine why storms form so quickly out here and how they can better forecast them.
4: We have an outstanding data set, and that's what Kim and I are out in the field to get, and that's outstanding radar measurements from our P-3 aircraft at close range of the storm as it intensifies, and you know if it produces a tornado, Uh, then from our perspective, that's going to help us learn even more specific lessons about what, uh, tornadic storms look like on radar.
5: It was a a fantastic flight to end the season for science on, yes. That's Williams again. A successful flight for this crew
3: means they were able to collect data on severe weather, which in this case was two tornadoes. That means rooting for weather that can be dangerous, even deadly to people. Thankfully, no one was killed in the tornadoes we witnessed. It's a tricky line to toe for the scientists and crew. While
5: we're not happy to see a tornado on the ground, it's gonna be on the ground anyway, so we're happy to be in that spot and capture the data so that we can understand the process from start to finish of the tornado development and better forecast it in the future.
3: While this was the last flight of the season, the work in the Southeast doesn't end here. The project's leaders have spent roughly half of their resources on the social sciences, attempting to learn the best ways to communicate warnings and forecasts. Because eventually, scientists will be able to produce perfect tornado warnings. But if they aren't heard or seen by the communities that need to hear them, people will still die. It'll take both detailed knowledge of the storms and a solid plan of action to make sure that people are safe. Luckily, scientists are making headway.
0: No conversation about the environment is complete without talking about the policy side of things. David Corcoran, senior editor of Undark magazine, brings us an interesting conversation with a very special guest who has had decades of experience in this area. David, welcome back to the show.
2: Hey, Kasha.
0: I'm very excited about your interview with the former EPA administrator. Tell us more about her.
2: Our guest, Gina McCarthy, has had a long career in protecting the planet and its people. She served as an environmental advisor to five Massachusetts governors. Uh, she was in the Environmental Protection Commissioner in Connecticut before going to Washington in 2009 uh, to serve in the Environmental Protection Agency. and. Uh, she was the uh, she had the top job at the Environmental Protection Agency administrator uh, in the second term of President Barack Obama. She's uh, starting a new center at Harvard on the global environment, and she joins us now, Gina McCarthy. Welcome.
6: David, it's great to be here with you. Thanks for having me.
2: So uh, before we talk about your old job, let's talk about your new one. You are director of the Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Uh, It's quite a mouthful. Why did you take the job? (laughs)
6: Well, I took the job because I think it's really important that science drive some of the key decisions that we have to make as a country and, frankly, as a world on how we protect public health and the environment and how we move to a much more sustainable way of living here on this planet. And, you know, we just do great science here at the Harvard school of public health it's made all the difference in the world in terms of having us understand some of the pollution challenges that have plagued us and and how to start reducing those but i think we have some real challenges moving ahead and science needs to underpin those decisions And I think this center can turn science into real actions that people can understand and embrace moving forward so they can tackle climate as a public health problem and not just as a polar bear issue. So I'm just here to learn from what these great scientists do and and put that work to action.
2: I want to press you on this a little bit because um, usually when we talk about climate change, we're talking about uh, rising sea levels, higher temperatures, bigger storms, uh, polar bears on ice flows. Um, you see it as a health issue. Uh, can you give me a couple specifics?
6: Sure. Um, I think most people in the United States understand that the climate is changing. I think the real challenge we have is to make sure that it's relevant to them in their lives and that we, we talk about it in a way that they can get their arms around rather than either sit and worry about what the government's going to do instead of what they can do and what it means for them. Let me give you a, a couple of examples. You know, climate change does include higher temperatures, and with those higher temperatures, you're seeing different types of communicable and, dis- and infectious diseases shifting as the vectors for those diseases shift. So you're seeing people face different challenges in different parts even of this country, like Lyme disease. You're seeing uh, expanded areas where malaria is a problem. As our water resources are challenged and, and water levels are lower in our rivers and streams, you're seeing opportunities for excess pollution there. You're seeing both challenges with legacy pollutants like lead, but you're also seeing new pollutants that are coming into our water supplies. They may be drawing water from a different area. They may be looking at rivers and streams that now have excess pollution in it. So we are facing serious challenges, and climate change exacerbates that. I think the easiest way to think about it is with air pollution. You know, we know know in this country that EPA began as a part of the excess pollution that people could see in the world. We knew we had problems. As we've worked hard, those pollutants have gone down. But in a changing climate with higher temperatures, you're going to see more ozone. You're going to see uh, examples of where particulate matter impact directly the ability of our seniors to actually live healthy lives and long, productive lives, but our kids. You're seeing more asthma attacks, more allergies as allergy symptoms, uh, as the allergy seasons broaden and get longer. We have real challenges here today as a result of a changing climate. So climate isn't about polar bears. It's really about our kids. And we want to look at those challenges from a science perspective, not to frighten people, but to engage them. Because David, we have solutions today. It's not just about explaining the problem, but it's embracing the solution. If we continue to invest in those innovations that bring new technologies to market, we know we can make great things happen. And that's what it's all about. Science is going to both define the challenges in a way that I hope will engage people and make sure they understand that these issues are relevant to them, but also bring solutions to the table. So it's an exciting place to be here at Harvard working with world-class scientists to sort of bridge the gap between science and the public.
2: You just opened at the end of May, and I see you've already announced a a partnership with Google on healthy buildings. Uh, Can you talk about that?
6: I can, you know, we have some some great uh, folks here that really understand what it means to have a healthy building and why that's important not only for our health but for our productivity. You know, we have opportunities today to work with Google and others, and we're doing this at Harvard to establish building standards. So as you're greening buildings and potentially making them tighter, so that they're more efficient, you can inadvertently stagnate the air in that building, or you can capture the toxics that are off-gassing from rugs or or from chairs and other furniture in a way that will make the toxicity problems more difficult and in a way that doesn't provide sufficient fresh air for the occupants of that building and so we want to not just have green buildings but you want healthy buildings and today we have experts in how to monitor buildings, how to look at the air quality, how to establish building standards for Harvard University that Google's working with us on so that we can translate to others how they can establish building standards that will not only keep the occupants healthy, but for corporations, how we keep their their people productive.
2: Okay, let's move on to your old job as administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency under President Obama. I'm curious what you saw as your biggest challenges there.
6: Huh. Well, the, the biggest challenges that we faced were to make sure that, that people understood what EPA does for a living. You know, part of the challenge I think that I'm, I'm trying to address here and that I, I faced at EPA was to make sure that even though we've done a good job at reducing visible pollution, that the agency still provided vital functions for public health protection that was the most important thing to communicate that it wasn't just about you know just having clean water for fish it was about having clean fish that people could eat it was about having clean water that served our, our drinking water systems it was about continuing to understand the challenges that air pollution continue to cause and the solutions to start continue to reduce those uh, challenges and it's about translating you know climate change to make it understandable and to treat it as we have other pollutants as a challenge we need to face and something that we can move forward on together. And I think we showed that the regulations that EPA provided didn't just reduce visible pollution, but they saved lives and we need to keep looking at doing that in a way that continues to grow the economy, but not think that our economic necessities mean that we have to start reducing those protections or abandoning the core values that really started EPA up and and others in the first place, which is we want our kids to be healthy, we want our kids to lead long lives, and we want them to have a future that's as prosperous as we had. And I think those are the kind of things that kept me awake at night was communicating that, making people understand the success that EPA has, but also the continued challenges that we face so that they don't think of us as regulating to reduce their freedoms, but regulating to make sure that they are free to live healthy lives. That's what we did for a living.
2: Do you have a single specific accomplishment that you are particularly proud of?
6: Um, I I, I do think that uh, there were a number of things that I think the agency did well, and not because of me, but because the science was there. We followed the law. We did a great public process, and the people at the agency, they are just 15,000 of the most wonderful uh, professional human beings that that I know, in working as a team, I think we we did a lot of good work. Probably the one that I'm most proud of is the Clean Power Plan, uh, because it was a challenge on how we look at our responsibility under the Clean Air Act to. Uh, To regulate carbon emissions that fuel climate change, but how we do it in a way that doesn't interrupt the energy system, because we all know that that energy is a necessity for people. And we wanted to make sure that the steps we took were informed by folks in the energy world, not just our environmental constituents who understood how the energy system worked, who understood what the opportunities are to shift towards clean energy. And I think what I'm most proud of with that is that I think we did a good job in listening and in crafting a system that allowed states plenty of opportunities to design their own strategies to reduce carbon pollution, but still keep the lights on, in fact, reduce costs to consumers, And and I I guess it's it's shown itself to be, I think, a pretty reliable tool to use, given that clean energy in this country is really taking off in ways where the majority of states today are on their way to achieving the goals in the Clean Power Plan, even though the Clean Power Plan has been stalled in the courts So I think we did understand the energy system. We did provide continued signals that the United States cares about clean energy, and I think all those signals and the investments that were made by President Obama during his term in office in new technology and innovation really sparked a clean energy revolution in this country and is not stopping.
2: Gina McCarthy, I can't let you go without asking you about the EPA under uh, your successor, the current administrator, um, he uh, talks about something called secret science. And I know you can't speak for him, yeah. but uh, what, is, what does he mean by secret science?
6: Well, you know, when when he says secret science, you know wh- what he's you know really talking about is is uh, taking some of the best science that we have, science that's been developed at at Harvard University right here um, at the Chan School of Public Health, um, as well as science developed by the American Cancer Society and others that really provide us the strongest window to understand the impacts of air pollution and our obligation under the law to reduce those impacts as best we can. And he is using secret science as a term to try to diminish the agency's ability to consider this best science, because he knows that when you do, then it's going to demand that actions be taken. And that's sort of how the law works. But we've always been able to take actions in a way that continued to allow the economy to grow, that continued to be real investments in public health to benefit everybody, that really reflected our core values. So the disappointing thing with this idea of calling it secret science and using transparency to undermine the best science is that we're gonna lose opportunities for significant benefits to our health and our well-being. Uh, that's not generally how I measure success as an administrator for the Environmental Protection Agency.
2: Usually there's some kind of handoff when administrations change. Uh, did you ever get a chance to meet Mr. Pruitt and talk to him?
6: Um, I met him actually in the D.C. Circuit, when they, which is the circuit court. Um, in D.C. when they were um, argue, arguing or doing the oral arguments of the Clean Power Plan. So I do not know him personally. Um, he, I, I know that he sued the agency 14 times. I guess that's as personal as it got. Um, but I don't know him personally, and and I would wish him great success in if, if he uh, really could take a, a little bit more care to make sure that in his effort to um, do his job that he focused on improving public health protections. That would be, that's really what the job is about. That's the mission of EPA is to protect public health and our natural resources. If he focused on that, I would certainly uh, wish him well, but so far um, that doesn't seem to be as much of a focus of attention for him as, uh, as other things.
2: Gina McCarthy is director of the Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, and of course she was the administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency under President Barack Obama. Gina McCarthy, thanks so
6: much. David, it was great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: All right, Undark listeners, thank you for joining us. This podcast was produced by Lydia Chain. Music was created by the Undark team. And I'm your host, Kash Patel. See you next month.